we have the Western governments protecting the profits of these pharmaceutical companies. How the European Union went from promising that the vaccines would be a global public good to a totally different approach. You're listening to EU Watchdog Radio. Hi, welcome. I'm Joanna Lausanne, comms officer at Corporate Europe Observatory, or CEO. In this episode of EU Watchdog Radio, we talk about how the EU approached the negotiations with the pharmaceutical companies and also about some of the concepts around vaccines. What are patents and do all vaccines have them? Are there examples with Big Pharma where the story is different? And also, are all vaccines developed in the private sector? In today's episode, we'll talk to Bruno Maia, a doctor and an activist, and to Olivia Hudemann, campaigner and researcher at CEO. So yes, you'll have the pleasure of listening to two Portuguese people speaking in English to each other. <laughs> Thank you, Bruno, for agreeing to, to talk to me. Um, so first of all, I'd like to know uh, what are uh, patents, vaccine patents, and how they are created and established. Okay, so patents are a mechanism to protect the pharmaceutical research and investigation of new molecules and new medications. We all know that with COVID it was fast, but how long does it usually take to develop a medicine? It takes about 14 years to develop a new medication to go into the market for a, for a, to, to cure or treat a disease. And how long do patents last for? Pharmaceutical companies get a 20-year patent protection, which means that there are no other similar molecules on the market, and so they get a, mo a monopoly of that particular medication. But is all research done um, in the private sector? No. So that's the, the one. There are a lot of um, questions about this mechanism of protection of patents. So there was an investigation published many published many years ago in the British Medical Journal that showed that approximately 90% of all new research coming from the private sector is new new molecules that are copies from previous already approved molecules that have fewer side effects or a slight improvement on efficacy. That's the main modifications that the industry does. And that research also showed that uh, most of these new molecules have no particular advantage to the global health or to the public health of a community. And sometimes bigger companies also buy smaller ones that have developed new molecules. And it happened in the in the COVID vaccine cases. Uh, so a big company like Pfizer, like Johnson and Johnson, what they actually do is they buy a very small company that has made has produced a new molecule. But in their origin, were the molecules developed in the private sector? Most of them comes from the public sector. There was also another research that was published a couple of years ago that showed that between 2010 and 2016, uh, the more than 200 new molecules approved by the FDA in the United States, they were... They were introduced by the private sector, yes, but all of them took 
public money. All of them. All. They were all financed by the NIH in the US, by the government, etc., etc. Um, did the same happen with the COVID research? It actually happened before with the COVID medication, which was remdesivir. It, it was then considered not useful for the, the, the to treat the disease by the World Health Organization. But in the beginning, we thought it could be helpful, this medication, remdesivir. And remdesivir was developed by Gilead, a huge HIV medication producer, um, to treat Ebola. Mm -hmm. And the development of this particular uh, pill, remdesivir, was funded by the United States government in $60 million. So it was paid partially by the American people. But then when the company, Gilead, uh, found out that this could be helpful in treating COVID, what did they do? They submitted the drug to be considered an orphan medication. Uh, what is an orphan medication? It's a medication to treat a disease, a rare disease that affects very few people. And uh, FDA and the, the, the American government, what they do, they extend the patent of this medication because it treats so few people, the profits are not that huge. So the pharmaceutical company gets an extended uh, protection for th that patent. Gilead uh, appealed to the FDA for the remdesivir to become uh, an orphan medication. But we are talking about a the pandemic. They submitted uh, these requests uh, as soon as they found out that it could work in COVID-19 before the disease was uh, spread more, uh, to more than 200,000 people because that's the limit for an orphan medication. They knew that in a week or in two weeks, the disease would affect, you know, one million or two million or three million. But they rushed to get this, this, uh, this protection uh, right in the moment where they found out that it could work. So they were trying to get more profits from a medication that was financed by the American people, taxpayers, um, trying to surpass these, uh, the legislation about orphan medications. Was there also public funding for the vaccines that were later adopted? In the case of Moderna, it was basically 100, almost 100% financed by the U.S. government. Mm -hmm. And so the U.S. government financed the production of, of the vaccine, of Moderna's vaccine. The U.S. government bought the vaccine then produced, which means that the people of the United States, they actually paid for the production of vaccine and then they bought the vaccine. Yeah. So that's amazing. And in Europe with Pfizer, it, it also happened uh, something similar because Pfizer is, um, has he, he produced the, its vaccine in a cooperation with BioNTech and BioTech, BioNTech is a German company. And this German company was financed by, by Germany and the European Commission in more than 500 million euros. So there was a lot of public money also invested in the Pfizer vaccine. So we, the people, gave these companies money to produce this vaccine and then we gave the money to buy the, this vaccine and then we signed contracts with this company saying that they control the rate of production, they control the rate of, pro uh, of distribution and they control the profits because they can establish themselves the profits they wish. They think it's better for them. And then they impose sanctions or barriers for our global distribution of vaccines. It's amazing. Indeed. 
And about these contracts, let's go back to Brussels to talk to Olivier Houdemann, who has been researching them for the last two years. Yeah, we asked uh, for the documents in September 2020 because uh, the, the vaccine negotiations had started. And we had seen that, uh, yeah, the, in the first months of the pandemic that the pharma industry had already been very, very active in trying to defend their interests, maintain the status quo, the way that they could normally do business with the EU decision makers. Um, and they were really afraid that there would be a different approach because it was a pandemic. So, of course, it would be normal to have a different ap approach when you're in this unprecedented situation of a global pandemic. But the pharmaceutical industry clearly did not want a different approach. So we, we thought it was really important to get uh, transparency around those negotiations. So we submitted the request and then um, uh, we didn't hear anything for a long time. Um, and we st we sent reminders. Um, there were two requests and one of them, we, which was for the contracts themselves, we got a rejection of access. Uh, so the commission argued that no, these could not be made Based public. On Based on primarily that there was commercial confidential information would be uh, revealed if it was uh, made public. So we appealed that decision because, uh, well, we argue that it's a pandemic. It's not a normal situation. It's not, an, uh, it's not uh, comparable to negotiating a contract to buy paper for the European Commission, right? It, it's nothing like that. It's, it's about finding a solution that works for uh, everyone in Europe, uh, developing vaccines and, and getting enough doses, but also for people around the world. So we appealed uh, and said that th those kind of arguments shouldn't apply during a pandemic. And um, the, the other um, uh, request was for the, uh, the the contacts with the pharmaceutical companies in the negotiations, so the whole all the paperwork around that. And there we just didn't get any response. And also there we sent reminders and, and just it was ignored. And in um, in January 2021, we had no choice but to go to the European Ombudsman with a complaint, just pointing out that the Commission had violated um, the so deadlines that are there in the law. And the European Ombudsman, in case you are wondering, is... The European Ombudsman is an institution that is there to uh, defend the interests of the citizens and make sure that the... The EU institutions follow the rules, their own rules, for how to make decisions and, and how to do it in a way that's as transparent as possible. Um, so then when something goes wrong, which it often does in the way the European Commission works, for example, and they disregard their own rules for whatever reasons, that it's more convenient to not follow them, the Ombudsman is there to remind the Commission that they really do have to follow the rules and that citizens do have rights under EU law to get access to information and so on. And at the moment there is a um, an ombudsman in office, uh, an Irish woman called Emily O'Reilly, who is a fantastic um, ombudsman, very proactive and really um, committed to defend the interest of EU citizens vis-à-vis uh, -vis the, the EU institutions. So she um, really goes the extra mile to hold the, the EU institutions accountable. And how did the Ombudsman intervene? So the Ombudsman um, read our complaint and decided to open an investigation. Mm -hmm. 
And that means that she contacted the commission to ask them for an explanation for uh, why they were not following the, the deadlines that are in the law or why they were not responding. And that then forced the commission to engage in this in a slightly different way, um, in a more constructive way. So um, they made some promises uh, after some months of uh, disclosing the, uh, the contracts uh, in redacted form, but still and to also start disclosing 365 documents or go through those documents mm -hmm. see which ones could be disclosed and um, so and that's um, that then satisfied the ombudsman and she closed the case at that stage mm -hmm. uh, at the same time there was a lot of debates um, in the european parliament about the secrecy of the of the commission around the contracts particularly mm -hmm. and that then led to the contracts gradually being uh, made public in the spring of 2021 but in heavily redacted form so that's an important other side of the problem is that one thing is of course to for, let's say formally speaking disclose the documents but then when large parts of them are crossed out or uh, turned black or, or grey so you cannot read what's in them it's not real disclosure and that is what CEO has now argued that people need real access to the documents. But still, there is interesting information in the redacted documents, which CEO has made available on the Ask the EU website. We're hoping that uh, journalists and members of the European Parliament and uh, citizens, uh, medicines, rights activists and, and others will, um, will use these documents to uh, to, to try to understand how the European Commission handled the pandemic and, and how they um, approached the vaccine negotiations. And one of the issues that's really, really important is how the European Union went from promising that the vaccines that were developed uh, would be a global public good available to everybody, also in the, in the poorest countries uh, of the world, to a totally different approach, the opposite approach, I would say, which is that the vaccines would be uh, covered by uh, far-reaching patents protection and owned by uh, a handful of pharmaceutical companies that would have monopoly control over those vaccines and make all the, the crucial decisions about how much to produce, uh, to whom to sell, um, uh, at, and at what price and 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 so on and when and that is where i mean in in moving from that position basically betraying the promise that it would be a global public good that's where things went dramatically wrong uh in the last two years because this then meant that that europe got vaccinated relatively quickly mm -hmm. but that uh, large parts of the rest of the world particularly the poorest countries uh, did not get vaccinated so um uh, so many people got got sick and 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 died. Uh, arguably, that could have been prevented if there would have been a, um, a fast vac rollout of vaccination across the world. <coughs> um, in, instead, uh, governments of Africa, for example, w had to go to Pfizer and and beg for vaccines, and they were just turned down because Pfizer knew that they could make much more money by prioritizing Europe and the U.S. So that is a, a, a really tragic mistake. And so one of the key issues now also for the European Parliament's uh, special committee on the COVID pandemic is to find out uh, who made that decision and how was that decision taken 
how could that U-turn happen just over in the course of a few months in the summer of 2020? Let's now go back to Bruno. Are there any examples of um, diseases that have been uh, cured or treated with a vaccine that was developed and created and then um, there, the, the patent didn't you know, follow the same story as what's happening in COVID? Well, there's a there's one one particular case which is poliomyelitis. The the doctor, well, he was a doctor and an investigator, who developed the pol polio vaccine. He could have um, used a patent and become a multimillionaire, and he refused. It, it, his name was Jonas Salk, and he refused to. Um, to create a patent for that vaccine because he considered that poliomyelitis was a global health hazard that and all the children of the world needed uh, to have access to that uh, particular vaccine. As you know, we are close, not there yet, but close to eradicate poliomyelitis in the world. There are, this is the most known example. There are other examples uh, of this. And actually, international legislation and uh, international trade and agreements, they predict that in particular situations, we can actually uphold, we can actually um, waive these, uh, the, the, the patents regulation. Um, all the states, they individually can uh, emit uh, compulsory licenses for any medication or vaccine. And um, according to the Doha Convention Agreement, in the case of a um, global hazard, health hazard, or a global pandemic, or a global problem, um, a waiver of these patents can be emitted by all the states and all the governments. So it is possible under regulation and international legislation to waive the patents when it is justifiable. This, uh, the TRIPS waiver for the COVID vaccines has been a demand from all the movements defending equal access to the medicine. Olivier, how did the World Trade Organization react? So that right exists under the World Trade Organization, but it has to be uh, agreed by the governments of the WTO, the right to to use that uh, that clause uh, um, and actually activate a TRIPS waiver. And that is where the uh, huge problem came in, is that when India and South Africa proposed that now there's a pandemic, so we need to have a TRIPS waiver so we can start uh, producing vaccines for everybody that needs them, there was an immediate block from the US and from the European Union, uh, a couple of other countries, but mainly um, mainly the European Union and the US blocked that proposal from day one. And um, that meant that there had been very, very slow, uh, painfully slow negotiations until a few, uh, well, until uh, last week uh, about um, allowing a trips waiver or not. And in the end, there was a, a compromise that really does not deserve the name of a TRIPS waiver. Mm -hmm. Some very, very minor uh, concessions were made by the EU, but basically um, governments uh, in, in the South, where, uh, where millions are still not uh, vaccinated, they will still not have an easy time producing uh, vaccines. Um, so that is, that's a really sad outcome. And it, it really shows that... Uh, confirms that the European Union has been actively defending the interests of uh, of large pharmaceutical companies mm -hmm. and showed almost no commitment to the the life or death situation in of of, of millions of people in the in the south 
Our episode is almost over, but before we go, I seem to remember that India offered to produce HIV medication for a much cheaper price and also to sell it to African countries which needed it. So this is not the first time that this has happened. Yeah, so what happened was that Indians uh, decided to not respect the the patents in life-saving medications like HIV. They had a soaring epidemic back then, in the beginning of the millennia. And then they start producing their own uh, HIV medication. HIV medication was at that time, at the beginning of the millennia, extremely expensive and extremely profitable for the companies. So what did the companies decided? Again, not to waive their patents and to uh, to maintain their patents and do not distribute this medication in Africa. Mm-hmm. And we know that Africa was the most affected country by the HIV epidemic. epidemic. It still is today. Uh, and there was a huge fight in the last 20 years for access to this medication. And the companies uh, producing HIV medication, together with the rich states, again, the European Commission, again, and the United States, they form an alliance to not waive patents on this particular medication. And India came along and they said, we are not, we are not respecting these patents and we are producing these medications for a fraction of what they are being sold in the rich world. So we can give them to the Africans. If you, if, if you let us, we can produce them and give them, and give them to the Africans. At that time, one pill of one particular uh, drug was being sold in Africa by $1,000, one pill, and the Indians were proposing to sell it for $1. It was... A huge difference uh, in costs, um, but but they, they couldn't. They were prohibited by the World Trade Organization of doing so. So and this process lasted for more than ten years. And in these ten years, as everybody knows, many millions of Africans died of HIV because of that, because of la- lack of access to HIV medication. There was actually one episode that was incredible: Uganda which was a country with, a, again, a soaring HIV infection with a lot of deaths, uh, was threatened by the United States and the World Trade Organization to suspend the agreements they have on food and other supplies if they bought the medication from India. And Uganda could buy the medication from India and could not pay the medication to the, to the, to the pharmaceutical companies. So that's in- incredible to think what happened just less than 20 years ago. The problem was solved and solved partially. So today we have a waiver, a partial waiver of HIV medication and African, some African countries are receiving uh, this um, medication. But again, it was based only on profits and protection of profits for these companies. Okay, we've come to the end of this podcast. Thank you so much, Bruno and Olivier. And also a big thank you to Mark Barone and Jan Kalavart for the technical assistance. If you like this podcast and you value the work of CEO, then please support us to stay independent. Consider making a small donation and sign into our newsletter at corporateeurope.org and follow us on social media. Till next time, ciao, ciao!